Welcome to the Sports Socks Podcast with Dr. Ashley Bassett and Dr. Catherine Logan. On each episode, we chat about the most recent developments in sports medicine and dissect through all the noise so you know which literature should actually impact your practice. On today's episode, we're focusing on rotator cuff tears with Dr. Anand Murthy, Chief of Shoulder and Elbow Surgery at MedStar Union Memorial Hospital and Professor of Orthopedic Surgery at Georgetown University. We have some great articles for you today that contribute well to our conversation on the surgical treatment of rotator cuff injury. As always, links to all the papers we discuss on the show can be found on our podcast website. The first article is a retrospective cohort study published this past month in the Journal of Shoulder and Elbow Surgery entitled, Early Repair of Traumatic Rotator Cuff Tears Improves Functional Outcomes. Matt Ramsey and his team at Rothman reported that patients who underwent surgical repair of traumatic cuffs within three weeks of injury had the best functional outcomes as measured by ASCS, SANE, and VAS scores compared to those who underwent surgery later. Furthermore, delaying surgical repair beyond four months was associated with significant decline in function across all scores. The authors concluded that early MRI diagnosis and prompt orthopedic referral is imperative when a traumatic cuff injury is suspected to avoid delay in surgical treatment that may negatively affect clinical outcomes. Then, from the October issue of AJSM this year, we review the publication titled A Multicenter Randomized Control Trial Comparing Single Row with Double Row Fixation in Arthroscopic Rotator Cuff Repair. Lapner and colleagues in Winnipeg and Ottawa, Canada, concluded that double row fixation was associated with statistically superior WORC scores compared to single row fixation at 10 years post-op, but that this is unlikely to be clinically significant. More importantly, double row repair leads to preserved function out to 10 years, while single row repair exhibited significant functional declines during this time period, as measured by changes in the WORC and ASCS scores. We are joined today by Dr. Anand Murthy, Chief of Shoulder and Elbow Surgery and the Director of Shoulder and Elbow Fellowship at MedStar Union Memorial Hospital. Dr. Murthy received his medical degree from Case Western Reserve University and completed his orthopedic residency at George Washington University. He then completed a fellowship in shoulder and elbow reconstruction at Columbia Presbyterian. Dr. Murthy is the former president and founding member of the Association of Clinical Elbow and Shoulder Surgeons. He is also an elected member of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon Society and was recently elected to the near circle of ASES. Dr. Murthy is passionate about research and has published and presented numerous research papers on a national and international stage. He is the current section editor for the journal Current Orthopedic Practice and also sits on the editorial board of the Journal of Shoulder and Elbow Surgery and the Journal of Shoulder and Elbow Arthroplasty. Welcome to the show, Dr. Murthy. Thank you very much for having me. It's exciting. Yeah. So I think we'll just start right off with treatment, you know, in the interest of time, um, diving into the treatment of rotator cuff tears today um, and starting with our indications for a non-operative treatment versus surgical treatment. Um, And we know that some patients can do well with non-operative treatment of rotator cuff tears. However, the paper by Matt Ramsey out of Rothman found that early surgical repair of traumatic rotator cuff tears led to significantly better functional outcomes compared to delayed repair, especially if delayed beyond four months. So, how do we rectify that? How are you deciding what patients should be treated acutely with surgery and which patients we should attempt a course of non-operative treatment first and then see how they do? It's a great question. That's probably the most common question we get when we're training, you know, training fellows and residents and also what 
patients want to hear. So they want to know what's the answer to this question. So I try to put rotator cuff patients into at least kind of narrow down my algorithm. So the algorithm is based on age, how long this has been going on, what kind of pain they're having and when, especially if they're having night pain and what treatments they've had in the past. And then uh, whether it's traumatic or chronic. And so if I see a patient who's in that and, and kind of 60 years old is kind of near my, um, that's my kind of older age, what I consider where outcomes kind of drop off a little bit of over 60. But, but now we're seeing even more healthy, physiologically older people doing well with cuff repairs. And then I kind of split them into degenerative, chronic and traumatic. When I see a traumatic tear, that's a whole separate, I put that in a separate category. It's almost like a fracture. So if I see a physiologically, you know, functional patient who had normal function and then they had trauma, you know, fell down the stairs or something like that, or, uh, and they come in and their exam shows that they have weakness, that is a big acute change. And then the MRI, you know, shows an acute tear that then I throw in imaging. That's the second part. If we put in imaging and we see it's really acute or relatively acute on very little chronicity, those are the patients I'm going to push to have early surgery. So that's a separate category. And I'm, and I'm maybe I'm more aggressive than most, but I think those patients do really well, like the Ramsey study showed. Instead of um, the problem is if you see a patient who's 50, has a traumatic tear, and then they get an injection by an outside doc, they get four or five months of therapy. And then you can see that acute tear turn into a pretty chronic degenerative, especially if they get multiple cortisone injections. We can talk about that for treatment. And um, you can get a really bad, you know, kind of MRI picture of the quality of their tissue. And then degenerative, you know, I put that into an age group. If they've been having pain for a moderate couple months and it's minimal to them and they have, you know, age-related changes on their MRI, uh, those are the patients that we're going to put through a course of therapy first. It's not new. Pain is really their biggest problem, not really weakness. And those are the patients that may go into kind of the category of anti-inflammatories, some sort of non-operative transdermal creams, therapy, you know, we even use acupuncture, um, things like that. Okay. Um, so also same study, um, the authors found no difference in symptomatic retail rate muscle atrophy or um, the fatty degeneration based on their time to surgery. So if tear size, you know, did not increase with the delay to surgery, it actually was smaller in that latter surgery group um, with the larger tears undergoing sur uh, surgery more, um, more quickly. So given these findings, um, that function decline with the delay to surgery, um, if those other factors were not the cause, you know, what do you think is going on with their functional decline? Um, I think some of this, oh, if you really, some of this, if you really read these papers really carefully, you'll see some differences in the demographics with, whether versus reading the abstract. I and mean, that's the biggest thing. I think people will read the title and read the abstract and then they go in and say, oh, maybe this, this, this delayed, and this was not a prospect and this is a delayed group. They were, you have the bias of the doctor treating them late. Maybe there's a bias of not wanting to treat them operatively. You have a bias of a younger 40-year-old that you want to treat earlier. So I think there's some inherent biases in those patients that are going to do well early anyway. Um, and that's probably why some of those results are better. If you take a motivated 50-year-old and you fix a two-centimeter cuff tear, 
doing any technique, you're going to probably get a really good result versus a 65-year-old who you've weighed, it's probably acute on chronic and then got more chronic over time, even though all these surgeons are excellent, are going to get a primary repair mm-hmm. done well. Um, that's probably some of it's probably in their demographics. Yeah, I think excellent point. And I think similarly, you know, if you're looking at insurance-based demographics, like who requires a referral, you know, and do they have to, you know, are they an HMO versus a PPO and all those types of things, like all these delays that get put in that have nothing to do with the clinical. If you look at a lot of the, uh, there's some recent literature my and my partner are doing on just health disparity on who gets to the doctor soon enough, you know, Mm -hmm. and if you're in a rural or urban practice, you may not see a patient for months after their trauma because right. it just took them months to get even to see a doctor versus using a, we see a lot of people use the ER, you know, as their doctor and then they'll, they just get delayed and delayed. And, you know, whereas that patient we would have seen and got an ER and MR the first week. Yeah. yeah 100%. Yeah. We, um, Catherine and I did an episode on shoulder instability and there was actually a paper published directly on that, looking at um, time to surgery and outcomes and then intraarticular damage. And they found that in, places of like low socioeconomic status and and minority patients that they had increased damage and longer time to surgery because of that access, lack of access. You would anticipate the same thing with, you know, cuff repair as well. Am I remembering that? Was that um, Carolyn Hetrick? Yep. Yeah. That was the the study there. I think she's done actually a bunch of those in different, like she did one on shoulder instability, I believe one on ACL, maybe one on meniscus, kind of looking yeah. at the impact of socioeconomic status on on access to care and then ultimately on outcomes. Yeah. So you did touch upon briefly um, cortisone injections. Um, so, you know, about 20% of patients in this study received a cortisone injection as part of their non-operative treatment before proceeding with surgery. Are you a fan of cortisone injections? Are you routinely doing them um, or are you using them sparingly? Uh, I use cortisone sparingly. Some of it's based on anecdotes. Some it's based on science. There's been a couple animal studies, rabbit studies that show that the effects of cortisone on collagen kind of break down over time. Um, And then, so that gave me a little warning. And then I had a, had a series of, and we're always, you know, we always look at our last five patients that we did something to Mm -hmm. make a decision. But, uh, um, at a group of patients with partial thickness cuff tears, uh, whether probably low grade and had gotten a cortisone injection therapy and um, pretty active people who came back, you know, did well. And then we discharge them, but they come back four five, six months later with an increased onset of these symptoms and their cuffs are just exploded. You know, they're just, they've gone from these, you would not even think that these MRIs were from the same person. And, um, and that was kind of shocking. So uh, I use them sparingly, probably more often in those patients with a more just uh, a tendonitis kind of picture who don't have any tearing tendon and making sure that uh, we don't repeat them often. Um, mm-hmm. But if someone's going to have surgery and, or if they have a traumatic tear, I'm probably never going to use Corsone. Yeah, I think it's hard. Those um, partial tears are difficult. You know, they're, they're a difficult situation because, 
you know, they want to understand, you know, how's the therapy going to make me better? Or um, I'm having trouble doing the therapy because my shoulder hurts and I want a little pain relief before I do therapy. Um, Yet I don't want you to take this tear down completely and repair it. So it's a tricky population for sure. Definitely. Um, When you are doing non-op, I'm also a fan of topical. I think the topical, um, now that Voltaren is over the counter, I think that's also made uh, leaps and bounds easier for patients to get. Um, I think that's been nice. And then non-op protocol, um, are there any sort of specific like nuggets or highlights that you have that you share with your therapist or your therapists have taught you? Because I know you have excellent therapists where you are. We have... um... Yeah, I think your success in your practice will be determined a lot by the therapists you have in your community. They can, uh, and, and really hooking in with a few that are really, you know, tuned in. One, if they're, they're just good and they know their stuff, but two, that they are good at communicating back and forth with you as a physician. But, you know, for me, it's get their inflammation down um, mm-hmm. by whatever means, whether that's stem or acupuncture or dry needling. Um, and then getting their motion back. Cause a lot of these patients who are, especially like the partial thickness cuff tears that you talked about have significant posterior capsule stiffness. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll make sure that they work on their posterior capsule stretching. Um, and they really, if they work on their mechanics, their scapula, it's really like avoiding the cuff. That's the last thing to work on. Mm-hmm. So, you know, working on their scapula, getting that stable, working on their posterior capsule, uh, getting those two. And then once they get those better, a lot of times time will have gone by and their symptoms are a little bit better if it's going to be treated non-op. So we're going to give them four to six weeks and um, see if they can work out, work on it that way. Yeah. I think oftentimes if I sort of sense in the office that someone's a little bit resistance to therapy, like they think what, you know, what are they going to do for me or, um, they're, you know, I'm strong already. I usually, you know, make the effort to flip them prone um, and test their scapular musculature. And I think we've talked about this study before, Ashley, but there was like mm-hmm. this EMG based study that I don't think it was particularly well done in the 90s. That was an AJSM um, that I like had used to carry around when I was a physical therapist. And it would talk about, okay, this is how you test rhomboids. This is how you test. Um, you know, any like upper traps, lower traps, middle traps, etc. Um, and so I still kind of work them through that. And they're always so weak as you know, I am. Um, so it just always sort of reminds us like, yeah, all these other muscles are really important. And, um, you know, you have to sort of balance this out. Yeah. And, and I always if they if they aren't doing well, whether post op or non op, I try to go through specifically what is the therapist doing for you, you know, um, I didn't know you were a therapist in your past. So you know this, that that's variable, just like any physician, group of physicians are great therapists. There are middle of the road and there are poor. And if you're, if you hear from your patient, oh, my therapist gave me some bands and a sheet of paper and, and sent me to the corner, you know, yeah. and then put some ice on it before and after, <laughs> then, you know, we, we often will change therapists too, you know, we'll get them to a better place and, and they they will just be like, wow, it's miraculous, you know, right. what the difference is. Yeah. And then you aren't operating on a bunch of impingement patients too. Yeah. I think it it's hard because the reimbursement, I, I'm not as familiar with the reimbursement in your state, but in Colorado, the reimbursement for physical therapists for certain carriers has just 
it hasn't changed in like over a decade. And so, you know, sometimes the model is we have a lot of students, we have a lot of aides, you know, but obviously that, that care is very difficult to um, carry out that way. So you sort of, you feel for them, but at the same time you say, I can't have you there. Right. You know, I need you to go somewhere else. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And you're doing what's best for the patient too. Cause if they get set behind, if they get stiff then it's really hard to battle back against that. So I always tell, I mean, I'm sure you do too. I see my patients every two weeks until their motion is full, just to make sure that we're not missing the boat on something. And right. if they're stiff, first thing I'll try to do is talk to the therapist because sometimes it's, they misunderstand my protocol. They're reading it wrong. They said, Oh, I thought this meant no motion in this plane. I'm sorry. And they correct it. But if it's just a fact of not really working well with them, then yeah, we, you have to change them to a therapist. That's going to be a little bit more hands on. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. The biggest one is internal rotation. I've seen therapists kind of, they don't work on it or uncomfortable working on it or working the posterior capsule. And, you know, you have to, if they're just, if they're doing strengthening, they haven't gotten their motion back yet. They're not going to really get any better. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. So if you do perform a cortisone injection, are you waiting um, on surgery? And if so, how long do you wait due to like concern for infection? Um, to be honest, it's usually ends up being around six weeks. Um, you know, I know the Brockmeyer pa paper and there's been some other papers, um, using these large database kind of Pearl diver data drives, which are extremely, have a lot of errors in them. That paper is cited more than any other paper these days. I mean, when you talk about surgery and post-surgical infection, and it's just not a great, and I'll tell, I tell Steve it all the time. And, um, I mean, it, it's not, it doesn't hurt to wait three months. I don't think, I think for some patients, it's a, it's a bit of an issue, you know, when, um, you tell them that they have to wait three months and they have all these plans, especially we had all these patients wanting, you know, like you, like you guys have patients wanting to have their surgery in December and, you know, oh, I had an injection in November, you know, my deductible is, is going to be out. And so I usually tell them six weeks. I think that's, enough. I've never had an issue over many years with an increase in infection rate with either arthroscopy or arthroplasty. So I think I'd be wary about, you know, pushing everyone three months away. I think the issue with cortisone and revision cuff tear is true though. Mm -hmm. uh, I think people who get a bunch of cortisone and then get a cuff repair, probably have a higher rate of failure. I generally do get an MRI first um, before I ever consider injecting. Can you know, I'm not sure how it is in your systems uh, as far as how fast you can generally get an MRI done. We can generally, if we really want to, we can generally get one within the, a few days. Um, so most patients are sort of, okay, if we're even considering, you know, a cortisone, let's just get the MRI. So we all feel confident with our decision. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. I'm, I participated in some of those pearl divers as a resident <laughs> and yeah, they're not, they are not perfect. You get a lot of stuff published though, but yeah. it, it may not always be uh, pertinent, I guess, or bi not biased. For sure. For sure. Um, so moving into a little bit of technique. So the next paper um, analyzed long-term data when we're looking at single row and double row techniques. So overall, authors found no uh, significant differences in quality of life and function across most of the outcome stores, scores. Excuse me. Um, and then, although not clinically significant, there were some scores favoring double row repair. 
Um, so do you have, you spoke a little bit about algorithm as far as choosing surgery, you know, do you sort of have a similar algorithm for technique, like single row, double row, or, you know, any other modified techniques that you might use? Yeah, uh, the um, the single row, double row debate now, you know, it's like 15 years old or something now. And it's, I think, I think the McDonald's day is very good. Um, and it's, it's kind of model, it's, it's model that they put it on. Um, it's probably a little still underpowered, like most orthopedic papers. It's probably got a type B error in there somewhere. Um, but I agree that if you can get a double row repair, it's most likely biomechanically stronger um, and they'll probably do better in the long term with anatomic repair. But I think the way I teach, I teach it or we put in our algorithm, the first, the number one thing is to recognize a tear pattern. I don't think every tear pattern can get a double row, at least that's for me, mm-hmm. whether you got to do margin convergence and then a single row on the end. It, the number one thing for me, it has to be without tension. So I could probably do a double row on every repair, but it would be under higher tension than a single row, which for me is multiple triple loaded anchors um, with a combination of like cruciate and single uh, simple suture repair, making sure that it's not under any tension. Um, sometimes we'll use like ripstop sutures and things like that. But there's a reason you're using single row, which means it's a pretty large tear that's under a lot of tension as well. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I think the most papers show that they're a little weaker single row over time, but you're selecting out, you're selecting out a group of patients that needed a single row. So they were most likely, you know, multiple tendon tear, including the posterior cuff. So, but they all do pretty well with regards to pain relief, whatever technique you use. So what I use, um, I like to use double row for all as many tears as I can that are, you know, single double tendon. Uh, if it's really small, I use uh, like a tension band, um, you know, inverted mattress. Um, and if it's, you know, massive and we need multiple, side to side and things like that, we'll use probably a single row after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you're doing a double row, do you tie medially or are you not list medially? What do you do? <laughs> I It's so funny. When I left fellowship, <laughs> I was all about tying. I was yeah, all yeah. about tying. And then I got into practice and I was like, all right, let me see. All right, I'm going to tie it. Everyone else is like, why are you tying? Stop doing that. Just do, you know, not list. And then, so I switched over to not list, but Recently, mm-hmm. I'm doing the medial, um, the arthrax anchors that have the knotless um, one where you can take the suture from the one side, load it to the other one. And so I do get some medial right. compression without having to have those knots possibly causing some subacromial irritation. So I've been doing that in large, um, larger tears. If it's like a small medium yeah. tear, I just do a standard knotless like speed bridge. But if it's a larger tear, then I do that knotless medially. I, I usually tie medial knots and then, you know, compress over the top. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot more of these new like pulley methods like you described are probably pretty useful as well. Um, but I've done, I think if, a, if you have a tear that's completely tension free, like a nice crescent, the outlets mm-hmm. on both sides, the linked repairs are obviously do really well too. And, and most of the studies show that as well. So I think it's dealer's choice. Um, sometimes that knotless takes even a little more time to figure out than the knotted. So yeah. <laughs> um, especially when you're training, and I think it's important when you're using that knotless type of suture bridge or speed bridge that you have to still make sure that you get all the tension out where it's medial, you know, or you'll have like a little gap 
underneath your medial medial row. Mm-hmm. So you got to kind of make sure you you compress it manually, almost with a with a probe or something. Absolutely. And then, do you ever like if you do a repair, it comes together great, tissue looks great. Are you ever augmenting that with biologics like PRP or any other sort of biologic injection? Sure. So. Uh, in my patients, when I get to those 60 and over who are chronic tears, I usually add uh, bone marrow aspirate uh, concentrate. So I aspirate from, um, we have a study going on now. The best aspirate is used from the lesser tuberosity. <clears throat> some of that's uh, anatomic if you look at kind of the blood supply. But you can get some really good BMAC from the lesser tuberosity compared to the greater and that may be on a chronic tear, the greater gets kind of avascular, even a little bit more avascular. And I also don't want to make any more holes. We're going to put some anchors in. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually you can get 40 to 60, you know, cc's and we spin that down. And then we'll put that in under dry arthroscopy. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the very end, uh, we'll actually aspirate out all the fluid and we'll dry it with a little Raytec through a portal um, and then kind of spray that in. And now I've added... Um, kind of the bursal harvest you can, cause I want some, some type of delivery method. So you can either use a graft, you can augment it. Um, if I have really poor tissue, then I'll augment it and then add the BMAC or you can just add it to kind of that bursal collection too. You can add, there's some devices on the market now where you can actually collect the bursa, which has some stem cells also. And that's just to, for me to supercharge these really bad degenerative looking tears that, you know, look like right. tissue paper when you're repairing, you're wondering why you're there yeah. at that time, but, uh, <laughs> and, um, to kind of throw the kitchen sink at it. Yeah. And, um, some anchors are kind of wicked anchors. We'll use those as well. Um, you guys know all the, the new products that are out there for augmentation. Mm. So technique wise, um, for the aspirate, um, can you back up and talk about what kind of kit, um, do you use to take that? Are we allowed to use proprietary names and stuff like that? You are, yeah. We are allowed. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> in trouble. The cataracts are going to come after me. No. Uh, when no. I, if I know I'm going to use uh, BMAC, when I get into the glenohumeral joint, uh, the Arthrex Angel system has a, essentially it's a percutaneous trocar. Yeah. And direct right into the lesser tuberosity. Um, and aspirate. It's got kind of this locking mechanism. So you can actually aspirate under tension, just lock it. Okay. And while you're doing other work, you can actually get your BMAC out. Then you pass it off and they'll spin it down. And uh, you can make your philosophical decision whether to use BMAC or just BMA without concentrating it um, okay. to lay kind of lay down as your augmentation. Okay. Yeah, interesting. So all my BMAC experience is really using Crest, mm-hmm. which obviously you know, there's some down, you know, some good downside to that as far as now you've got a new surgical site positioning, yeah. depending on how you position, it can be difficult if you're not lateral. Um, so, uh, yeah, it can be a little tricky. So I'll have to look at uh, definitely has. So the crest definitely has better colony forming units than the humerus. Mm-hmm. We don't know what the actual supercharged number is. So the crest could have a hundred and the humerus could have 10, but maybe 10 is all you need. Right. So, mm-hmm. oh, I don't know yet. Um, and it sounds like you guys are doing a study, which is exciting. Yes, yeah, so we're doing MRI follow-up of nice. uh, of chronic tears. So, awesome! That'll right. be good to see. We'll look out for that. That'll be great. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, and then in addition to biologics, um, you mentioned, you know, some of the other tissue augments. Um, do you use, we'll talk about SCR in a little bit when we get to irreparable cuff tears, but if you repair a cuff um, and it looks like bad tissue quality, like you said, in addition to doing BMAC, do you use any of those additional tissues like the dermal allograph? Um, do you have one you prefer and, and so how do you incorporate say, it? Um, if it's a primary with bad tissue quality, um, and I can get a primary repair. I'll think about using like the Regenitin um, patch uh, or over the top. If it's a revision with good quality tissue and I've gotten a primary repair, then sometimes I'll augment it with the dermal allograft and sew it in on top. Um, I think the uh, just to give it some added tissue quality, act as a washer, hold my sutures in. Um, I get a lot of revisions and I don't like to just do the same thing twice. Right. So I like to add something for augmentation, whether it healed because of biology or mechanics. I've got to do something a little bit better. And um, the new uh, Arthrex Cuffman looks pretty good, too. And hopefully that'll make the delivery a little bit easier. Thank you for listening to episode 15 of the Sports Docs. We hope you enjoyed the first part of our discussion as much as we did. On the next episode, we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Anand Murthy and shift our focus to management of irreparable rotator cuff tears, including the use of tendon transfers, superior capsule reconstruction, arthroplasty, and the new subacromial balloon spacer. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to stay up to date on all things sports medicine. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving us a review. You can also reach us by email at thesportstockspod at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at thesportstockspod. We love your feedback.